Ecclesiastes 3, 1-8 through 8. To everything there is a season, and a time to every purpose under the heaven. Time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up that which was planted. Time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. God's Word As Christians entering into the season of Lent, it's good for us to remember that everything has a time and a place, and there are times for joy and times for sorrow. Lent is often appropriately seen as a time for self-reflection. It's the season when we remember that we were once groping around blindly in the darkness until the light of the world beat the powers of hell once and for all. To be sure, we should reflect on our sins, but at the same time, we should lift up thankful praises to Yahweh, who on the cross vanquished the powers of darkness, so that sin may no longer have a hold on us. Welcome to the Counting Room. I want all my listeners to know about the counting room is that while I may be running this podcast from my basement by myself, that doesn't mean that you can't help. You can send me feedback, suggestions, things I can improve, things that you liked, subjects I can talk about, or maybe you're interested in being a guest. If you want to help me make this podcast better, you should email me at feedback.thecountingroom at gmail.com. Once again, that's feedback.thecountingroom at gmail.com. I enjoy making this content, and I enjoy talking about faith, politics, and everyday living. And I welcome any assistance in making this content more fruitful and more beneficial to my listeners. Please, take a few moments and consider how you can help and send me an email. Thanks. Psalm 130 Out of the depths have I cried unto thee, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let thine ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If thou, Lord, shouldest mark my iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But there is forgiveness with thee, that thou mayest be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul doth wait, and in his word do I hope. My soul waiteth for the Lord, more than they that watch for the morning. I say, more than they that watch for the morning. Let Israel hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is plenteous redemption. And he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. God's Word As Christians, we often think that grace wasn't installed until the New Testament. But we can learn many things about grace from the Psalms and the life of David, who wrote many of the Psalms. You might recall David's repentance for his great sin, but what we often forget is that after his time of repentance, David arose and ate. It was over and in the past. 
Satan, the accuser, wants us bowed down by the weight of our sin, so that we will never rise again. He wants to see the image of God made low and prostrate. He wants to see man twisted and backwards, bowed down in shame, or puffed up in pride when we should be ashamed, are both great options for his designs. As I referenced in the opening, there's a time for all things. There's a time for mourning, a time for repentance, a time for suffering, a time for testing. The 40 days of Lent are a time spent in the wilderness, not just to face ourselves and face our sin, but to do battle. Self-reflection and evaluation are good things that we should do. But we should also remember that the goal is to do battle with our sin and kill it. This is what confession is all about. We bring our sin to our Lord and ask Him to crush this enemy. We know He will, because He is faithful. 1 John 1, 9 If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We like to think that we can handle sin on our own, and without God, we can still do pretty good. Look around at the world. Look around at the world that denies God. Are they doing pretty good? Does a world that hates God handle sin well? If you're honest, you'll say no. We can't handle sin on our own. All of our good works, apart from God, amount to filthy rags. We need Him in order to fight that great enemy of sin and overcome it. He is faithful and will wash away the shame. In this life, we will face dark times, especially when we're faced with the true reflection of ourselves in sin. Yet, there is hope. Our Savior has taken the punishment for us. He has defeated death and sin, and has ascended to His heavenly throne now he bids us to rise. We may spend this Lent season in the desert, examining ourselves, reflecting on sin and shame. But we do so with great hope, knowing that our God is faithful. Only he can forgive. Psalm 130 has an interesting arc. It starts with a personal cry for help and a plea for forgiveness. Then... It speaks to God's ability to save in waiting on him. Then it ends with hope for restoration of the nation of Israel. We can call the nation to repent, and it is the duty of the church to do so. But we cannot do this until we have taken care of ourselves first. We have not done our job of shepherding the nations. Instead, the church has often sought to prostrate itself before false gods and their ideologies. We had hoped that by making a peace treaty with secularism and a whole multitude of false teachings that we would carve out our own little space where we could hide out and never risk any engagement with the enemy. But secularism is treacherous. When it makes a promise, that promise is to nothing and everything all at once. By making this deal, we have ignored our gospel mission. I am not saying that we need to resort to drastic incendiary means. That's what the world does, 
and we can't fight tyranny with our own form of evil. We are required, however, to speak the truth, even when it goes against popular opinion. This means that we must shed light on the truth, even when it's uncomfortable. We have 40 days of Lent, 40 days in the wilderness to do battle. What are we doing battle with? Are we doing battle with murdering infants in the womb and dressing it up as a medical procedure? Are we doing battle with sexual deviance, celebrated as virtue? Our indifference to sin has sent a clear message to the world that they don't need us. Why would they need us if we don't speak the truth? John 14.6 Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the light. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. God's words ring true, but we are denying the truth and not speaking the truth of the gospel that proclaims Jesus as King, and that He is the way to defeat the death of sin and live in Him. There's a lot of talk about revival these days, but the church needs to repent and preach the truth of God's word first. So many people are living in the depths that we see in the opening of Psalm 130. We Christians all too often take the approach that that's them, and so we'll keep silent. We're so cowardly and callous that we leave them enslaved to sin, and resign them to a life of suffering with very little hope. The hopelessness and faithlessness in society is pervasive, and by not teaching Speaking up and proclaiming the truth of the Word of God, we're sending the message that we don't truly believe it to be true. The world formed the view that it has of the church from observing the way the church has acted over the last couple of centuries. It's time to change the course. The first thing that the church as a whole must do is act as if we believe. There's no room for picking and choosing what scriptures are most user-friendly for our message. There's no room for deism in the Christian faith in any of its modern forms. Many Christians these days espouse the miracles are purely symbolic fables that we might learn some typology from. This position is anti-Christian nonsense. We try to proclaim the truth as our sinful heart wants it to be, but not as God's word says. We need Christians who believe in the inerrancy of Scripture and act accordingly. We need to believe that Scripture is true, that we need saving from sin, and that Jesus' death on the cross was effectual in delivering us from sin. So, believing and acting as such means that we live a life that is different. People get angry about this idea that Christians want to keep themselves separate and worry that our separation sends the wrong message to the world. I would counter this mindset by saying that when you join the world and live the same lifestyle as the world, that the world sees that and sees that they don't need the Christian faith because it doesn't have any sort of alternative to the ways of the world. This particularly comes into focus when we look at public schools. There are many Christians who think it's a moral good to put their kids in public schools so that their kids can be on an involuntary mission of evangelism to the children in the public schools. Children, however, 
have not dedicated their hearts and souls to such a mission, and will surely join the natives. At the same time, when the natives discover that the missionaries are sending their children to the temples for learning, they won't see any need to change their religion. Their god remains secular statism, and they still live lives dedicated to that religion and all of its ideals. You have told them by your own actions that this lifestyle is good enough. I know that there are brothers and sisters in the faith that won't like what I'm saying, but it's basic to the Christian faith that we raise our children in the faith. If there's a rebuttal or a formidable answer to what I'm saying, I'd be interested in hearing it, but I must admit that I'm skeptical. God does have a concern for where we put our kids eight hours a day, and he will call us to account for it. Make sure you've increased the talent that you were given instead of burying it. Our churches cannot hang rainbow flags to show fealty to sin. Even with the best of intentions, churches should not hang these flags. We can paint our intentions up in flowery words all we want. But we are not ministering by doing this. We're making a mockery of the church. Galatians 6, 7-8 Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. The Christian church as a whole has the job of sowing the seed of God's word. If we sow aiming at the flesh, which is what wokeness does, we will reap corruption. So, cast your seed aiming for the Spirit. Our choice is between appeasing the worldly flesh or imparting the truth of the Holy Spirit. But when we twist the word of God to mean what we want it to mean, God will not stand for it. He will not be mocked. Now, you might be tempted to think that I'm getting off topic, and this has little to do with Psalm 130. This has everything to do with Psalm 130. I am crying from the depths. Hear my voice, and be attentive to my supplications. This is all individual talk, and we're led to believe that this is an individual cry for deliverance. However, the psalm switches focus from individual to the nation, and it would be highly appropriate if these were the words of a king. In fact, the writing of Psalm 130 is often ascribed to King Solomon. I cannot tell you what inspired this psalm. Sometimes we know, and sometimes we don't. We do know that Psalm 130 shows a kingly attitude towards sin. There is an individual repentance and a cry for deliverance, and there is hope for the nation to be spared and redeemed. In our hyper-individualist, pluralist times, we like to take the cowardly position that we cannot decisively speak to any issue. I was told this week that we can't speak to abortion because it's a moral issue and therefore private. This is nonsense. First of all, we need to beg the question of why it's a moral issue. But on the other side, the logic is that morals are private. Now, everyone is walking around with their own set of morals, and because of this, society is spiraling towards collapse. When we have no set reality, and we allow everyone to determine for themselves what is and isn't reality, we shouldn't be surprised when we see hopelessness, helplessness, and despair in our communities. In society, 
we shield people from the truth and affirm lies. And then, when those same people are face-to-face with reality, it's very painful. Their world comes crashing down. This is why we have such a big drug problem. The area that I live in has had a huge increase in drug problems and and opioid-related deaths. I'm sure if we were to watch the trend go up, it would be side-by-side with moral relativism in our society. It's related. This is what society looks like without faith in God. Our culture has run away from the reality that Christ is king overall, and we've embraced moral relativism. Leaders claim that morals are personal choice, but we have seen throughout history time and time again that morals are important to the culture at large and that they bring consequences on that culture. In Psalm 130, we see a different attitude. We start with individual repentance and forgiveness. We have hope, and we move towards a corporate hope of restoration for Israel. Our leaders should be placing themselves under God's authority, and they should be in a state of self-examination. The leaders I'm talking about are church leaders and our national leaders. In America, we don't like this idea of national leaders under God's authority. We want there to be an open question of who's God. This open-ended posture leads to many divisions in our country because we claim that there is no authority from which our laws and morals should come. There are those who use this notion of separation of church and state to take Christianity out of the public square. This approach is ungodly. But there is hope. I don't want to get to the end of all this without bringing hope. The pattern of Psalm 130 should give us hope. We have the scene of being in the depths and bringing our sins before God. God faithfully forgives the sins, and Israel, the nation, is restored. This is once again a psalm of ascension. So we should be thinking of worship when we think of this psalm. With this in mind, we should see our weekly covenant renewal worship service in that pattern. We don't just bring our own sin to the Lord in confession, and there should be a moment of confession and worship. In our church, we do weekly corporate confession that is scripted and highly effective. Not only are we going before God and confessing our sins, but we are praying for our corporate sins as a church body, and as a city, and as a nation. The church has a duty to be shepherding its nation through teaching and baptizing, and part of that is done through prayers of confession and acknowledging that we carry a responsibility for our nation's sins. We're not detached from what happens in the United States of America. That's not two separate realities, and it's not relative. The spiritual health of the nation speaks to the spiritual health of the church. When looking at the faithlessness of the USA in our day and age, we should stop and consider if we're doing a good job. Now, This might seem like I'm all doom and gloom, and only lamenting the way things are. But I believe we have a bright future to look forward to if we do our job. As Christians, we are people who hope and long for restoration of all things. However, we might be tempted to forget this as we go about our daily toil. Do not let your hope grow stagnant. There is a reason why we worship together on Sunday. And it's not because church is a nice social club. 
we know that God has promised the restoration of all things, and we should take great hope in that. I know I do. I take great hope, and that's why I'm bringing you this message. We do not labor in vain. I believe there's great opportunity for revival in this country. Lord, make us ready to do our part. Now let's get to our weekly book review. Gashmu Sayeth It by Douglas Wilson Gashmu Sayeth It How to Build Christian Communities That Save the World by Douglas Wilson is, as the title says, a book about community building. If I were to look to a fellow Christian for advice on how to build a Christian community, I would be convinced that Doug Wilson is the guy to go to. Doug has built quite the community in Moscow, Idaho, and he has done so while staying true to the message as put forth in the Word of God. In Gashmu Sayeth It, Doug lays out why our culture needs Christian communities, how to make such a community, and how this community will be effective. This book is not a simple business DIY model that you can follow these easy steps and have your Christian community. Instead, Doug points us to the Word of God as the medicine for our cultural ailments and reminds us that building a Christian community requires Christians to share in the fellowship of Christ. My biggest takeaway from this book is that Christians should not lose hope. Our culture might seem like it's falling apart and at the same time feel like the tide is turning against us. So what do we do? We build. I say it all the time on this podcast, but it needs to be said again. We need to build homes, churches, hospitals, and businesses. Each of these things needs to be a living gospel message to all who see it. Doug Wilson gives me great hope that the tide will turn in our favor. And he also reminds me that it doesn't have to happen in our lifetime. We're trusting in our God to do as he has always done. We're trusting him to be faithful to us. I highly recommend that you read this small book that Doug Wilson wrote with his typical sharp-witted humor. Now, let's go build that community and save the world. I'm Joel Edgar. Thank you for joining. God bless. God bless.